BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Sin City Stories contains explicit content that may be disturbing to some listeners, including strong language, graphic details, and depictions of violent crimes. Listener discretion is advised. Las Vegas teenager Kim Bryant went missing from in front of her high school on a winter's day in 1979. Her abduction and murder would scar the Vegas community and remain unsolved for decades. But just as the case seemed to be going cold, new suspects in the disappearance would be revealed, including a vicious serial killer known as the Chameleon. Since its founding on May 15, 1905, Las Vegas has gone from being a small railway stop in the middle of the Mojave Desert to a glittering neon oasis of gambling, shopping, fine dining, and entertainment, welcoming tens of millions of visitors from around the world every year. Through its relatively short history, the city has been witness to over a century's worth of murder, robberies, arson, and mayhem. And that's what we're here to share with you. In collaboration with MayhemInTheDesert.com, this is Sin City Stories, Vegas True Crime. The sordid tales behind the stranger-than-fiction history of fabulous Las Vegas, Nevada. Kim Bryant's parents moved away from Las Vegas in the years following the untimely death of their daughter, but they continued to press police for information on the investigation into Kim's murder. And the mid-1980s would bring a new suspect into focus, along with the possibility that Kim's slaying was one of several perpetrated by a ruthless cross-country serial killer. Robert Ireland arrived in Las Vegas from San Francisco sometime around 1977. In short order, the newcomer with a murky past strikes up a relationship with a local school teacher by the name of Sylvia. The relationship moves fast, and that same year the couple travel to visit Sylvia's mother at her home in New Haven, Connecticut. Robert, whose trade is in the construction industry, performs work remodeling what he hopes will be his future mother-in-law's house. 
At some point during the trip, Robert asked Sylvia to accompany him to a vital statistics office in the area to obtain a copy of his real birth certificate. Once the couple returns to Las Vegas, Robert goes to court to perform a legal name change to what he claims is his true birth name, Robert Generoso. Robert and Sylvia Generoso wed in Las Vegas in November of 1977, and the happy couple move into a comfortably middle-class neighborhood on the western side of the city, less than a 10-minute drive from where Kim Bryant's body would be found two years later. Robert settles into a career performing painting and insulation installation at building sites around town, while Sylvia continues working for the Clark County School District. Before long, the couple welcome a child on January 17, 1980. But despite the happy outside appearances presented by the Generosos, Robert has a much darker secret life he keeps hidden from his wife. It's just after 4 p.m. on January 16, 1980, almost a year after Kim Bryant's daylight abduction, when 18-year-old Susan Balot leaves her job at the Al Phillips Cleaner in Las Vegas. She will never be seen alive again. A few months later, at around 12.30 a.m. on the night of June 27, 1980, 19-year-old Cheryl Daniel and her boyfriend make a quick stop at the Alpha Beta supermarket on Spring Mountain Road and Rainbow Boulevard. He parks the Jeep and quickly runs inside to grab some snacks. However, when he exits the store just five minutes later, he's surprised to find the Jeep in a different spot with Cheryl nowhere to be found. She's disappeared. Homicide detectives would later say they believed Cheryl moved the Jeep to help jumpstart a maroon Ford Ranchero with a white camper shell that was driven by a white man in his 30s. Meanwhile, the clothed body of Susan Balot had been found on May 26, 1980, about a mile off of Interstate 15 near the southern Utah town of St. George. It would take another six months before she was positively identified. Balot was killed by strangulation. A few weeks after police positively identify the remains of Susan Balot, the nude body of Cheryl Daniel is discovered by a group of hikers about three miles away from where Balot's corpse was located. Daniel was killed by a single gunshot wound to the head. Detective Hilliard of the Las Vegas Metropolitan Homicide Unit receives a call from his counterparts in St. George, Utah on December 15, 1980, with information that may help break two cases in Hilliard's jurisdiction. The police in St. George report that an ID card belonging to one Robert Generoso had been recovered near the body of Cheryl Daniel. Hilliard takes immediate steps to locate the murder suspects, but it's already too late. At some point in 1980, just months after the birth of their child, Robert Generoso separated from Sylvia. He set himself up at the Mission Apartments on Decatur Boulevard. Then, after months of little to no contact, Robert suddenly calls Sylvia out of the blue on December 3, 1980. He informs her he's leaving Las Vegas for an undisclosed location. Investigators later determined that Robert had already fled to Hawaii by the time he made this call to Sylvia. He'd phone his estranged wife a few more times over the following weeks to press her on what the police knew of his links to the Cheryl Daniel and Susan Balot murders. During every one of these calls, Robert insists to Sylvia that he's being framed by the police. When Metro detectives come knocking on Sylvia's door to gain additional information about her husband, a fuller picture of the terror Robert Generoso has brought upon the Vegas Valley comes into view. 
For instance, Robert got a new haircut as part of a complete change to his appearance in April of 1980, shortly after news broke that a 15-year-old girl was found in the desert raped and left for dead not far from where Kim Bryant's body was discovered. The girl had been abducted while walking near Garside Junior High School at about 6 p.m. on March 30, 1980. After being dragged to the desert, the girl was beaten in the head with a nearby rock by her assailants, leaving her in a coma. Fortunately, the girl eventually recovered from her injuries. Sylvia Generoso quickly realizes that her entire marriage has been rooted in lies. She learns her husband's real name from the police, Stephen Peter Morin. Stephen Peter Morin was in trouble with the law for pretty much his entire life. When he was 15, Morin was arrested in Florida for stealing a car and sentenced to a term of six months to five years in the state prison. Morin ended up serving just over two years of that sentence, being released on July 16, 1968. He next ran afoul of the law in 1972 while living in his native Rhode Island. Morin was arrested for possession of LSD and stealing a Ford Ranchero the same type of vehicle that would later be implicated in the murder of Cheryl Daniel. Morin is sentenced to five years of probation. Giving in to his nomadic tendencies, Morin ditches the East Coast for San Francisco sometime around 1976, taking up work as an auto mechanic. As he travels, Morin makes sure to frequently change his physical appearance. This habit will later lead to authorities dubbing him the Chameleon. At this point, Morin has a chance to start his life over. But he proves unable to control his impulses, and his move to the West Coast will see him escalate his crimes to vicious new extremes. Morin's legal troubles are initially more of the same petty crimes that marked his checkered history up to this point. He's arrested in San Rafael on April 9, 1976, for possessing a syringe and resisting arrest. His crimes escalate, and he's next arrested for murdering his girlfriend's cat and then sending the remains to her workplace. Morin and this girlfriend later marry, but unsurprisingly, soon divorce. A few months later, in September of that year, Morin lures a 14-year-old friend of his sister to an apartment, where he then tortures and rapes the young girl. This brutal crime leads to Morin's indictment on felony charges by a San Francisco grand jury. But the chameleon stays just one step ahead of the law. He moves to Las Vegas under the new alias Robert Ireland, and soon takes up with an unsuspecting woman named Sylvia. While on vacation to Connecticut with his new fiance, Morin visits the Yale University Library to scour the obituaries until he finds the name of a man that's of similar age and appearance to himself. The name is Robert Generoso. Shortly after the Las Vegas police begin investigating Robert Generoso and his role in the murders of Cheryl Daniel and Susan Ballot, the FBI informs them of Generoso's real identity. And it isn't long before Vegas police look for connections between Stephen Peter Morin and the murders of other young women around the city, including Kim Bryant. Detectives find their first link to Kim's murder when they search a storage unit owned by Morin off of Valley View Boulevard. Police discover a macrame belt similar to the one that Kim wore the day she went missing, which hadn't been found at the crime scene. Sylvia provides further links to the Bryant murder when she recounts for police an occasion when her husband brought home a broken gold lighter that he said he'd found. Kim's parents tell investigators that their daughter routinely carried around a broken gold lighter. 
This strong evidence will be bolstered once police link a familiar vehicle to the Bryant killing, a Ford Ranchero. About two weeks before her disappearance, Kim introduced her parents to a new male friend she'd met. He calls himself Joe and says he's 24 years old. Kim's parents recall their daughter's new friend as Italian-looking. Morin has a darker complexion and jet black hair. Joe takes Kim for a night of skating at the Playland Skating Rink on Valley View Boulevard in a vehicle similar to Morin's dark-colored Ford Ranchero. But soon after Kim and her date arrive at the skating rink, her new friend's behavior inexplicably and suddenly turns aggressive. Kim grows so uncomfortable that she asks an ex-boyfriend who's also at the skating rink for a ride home, confiding in the ex that she's afraid to drive home with Joe. Kim and her ex-boyfriend are followed from the skating rink by a red Ford Ranchero driving in an erratic manner. Kim's ex later identifies a photo of Morin as the man present that night at Playland. Friends of Cheryl Daniel, who went missing from the supermarket parking lot, also identify a photo of Morin as the man Cheryl had dated for about six weeks before ending things upon learning he was married. In a coincidental link to the Bryant murder, Cheryl had met Morin at the Playland skating rink while taking her younger sister to skate. Cheryl also told her mother that her new boyfriend worked in the construction industry, which fit with Morin's work as a building contractor. Morin's wife Sylvia also confirms with police that her husband frequents the Terrible Herbs gas station where Cheryl worked as a clerk. And he's also a frequent customer at the Alpha Beta supermarket near their home where Cheryl was kidnapped. After placing a few short cryptic calls to Sylvia in December of 1980, Stephen Peter Morin embarks on a nationwide killing spree that takes him from one coast of the country to the other. Morin first travels from Hawaii to Northern California. Even though he was now a wanted federal fugitive, Morin is unable to keep a low profile. He's arrested in the town of Pleasanton after brandishing a 45 pistol at two men during an argument. Morin provides authorities with an alias and is released on $500 bail pending trial. The fugitive is wise enough to know he can no longer hang around California. So Morin hitchhikes for more than a thousand miles, finally landing in Branch, Louisiana, where he takes up work as a machinist. Morin keeps on the move and travels north from Louisiana to Buffalo, New York. There, the serial killer deploys his trademark charm to strike up a friendship that quickly turns romantic with a woman named Rita who owns a local antique shop. When it's again time for Morin to return to the road, he convinces Rita to sell her antique store and use the money to purchase a van for their travels. Morin and Rita stop for about a week in the Denver area where he obtains work as a painter. And coincidentally, it's not long before Denver is struck by tragedy. Sheila Whalen, a recent college graduate, goes missing from her job as a waitress. Her body is later found strangled at a motel room in Golden, Colorado. Sheila is the victim of Stephen Peter Morin's steadily worsening compulsion to kill. Fleeing Colorado around November of 1981, Morin and Rita head south for warmer temperatures in Texas. But tensions simmer between the couple as they enter the Lone Star State, with Rita growing more and more frustrated at her new boyfriend constantly checking out other women. Rita finally becomes so fed up she abandons Morin and returns to New York. Before long, Morin charms another woman by the name of Sarah Clark and somehow convinces her to accompany him on his crime spree. Morin murders two more women as the couple travels through Texas, both times to steal their vehicles. 
Morin and Sarah even kidnap a woman from an apartment complex in Corpus Christi and force her to join them on their journey. Police finally track Morin to a hotel in San Antonio, where they locate the hostage taken in Corpus Christi alive and arrest Sarah Clark. But Morin manages to slip out a window moments before police arrive. Amidst a nationwide manhunt, he kidnaps another woman from a department store parking lot. But over the course of several hours, his hostage convinces Morin to turn himself in without any further bloodshed by quoting Bible verses to the killer. Morin releases his hostage and phones the police from an Austin bus station. And within minutes, police swarm the bus station with guns drawn. Stephen Peter Morin, one of the most dangerous men in America, is taken into police custody without incident. Morin faces two separate trials in Texas for the murders of Carrie Scott and Jana Bruce during his frenzied flight from the authorities. Morin is convicted in both cases and receives two sentences of death by lethal injection. Upon learning of his second death sentence, he whispers to his attorney, now I guess I've got it in both arms. Detectives with the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department traveled to Texas to interview Morin about the Kim Bryant, Cheryl Daniel, and Susan Balot murders. But the killer steadfastly refuses to discuss his time in Vegas. No indictments are issued in relation to these murders because police lack sufficient evidence to link Morin to the crimes. However, there is plenty of circumstantial evidence putting Morin with the motive, means, and opportunity to carry out the three slayings between 1979 and 1980, as well as the brutal rape and attempted murder of the 15-year-old girl abducted near Garside Junior High School around that same time frame. Shortly after midnight, on March 13, 1985, officials at the Texas State Prison in Huntsville lead Morin to the execution chamber. A technician spends several minutes without success trying to locate a vein to insert the intravenous line into the condemned man's left arm. Morin's years of chronic drug abuse have left his veins shot. The technician then tries to find a vein in Morin's right arm. As the serial killer had inadvertently predicted after his sentencing, he was, quote, getting it in both arms. Prison technicians eventually find a viable vein in Morin's arm. He's put to death after making a last statement, granting forgiveness to his executioners, but without expressing remorse for the lives he had taken. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. 
Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's now 2021, and at its offices in Houston, technicians working at Othram Labs are quietly honing state-of-the-art genetic testing techniques. Othram has refined a method of processing truly minuscule amounts of genetic material, sometimes just a few cells, to make identifications in cold cases. And the company is using this technology to solve cold cases from across the United States. These new methods developed by Othram are successfully applied to a notorious Las Vegas cold case, the 1989 murder of 14-year-old Stephanie Isaacson as she walked to El Dorado High School. The costs associated with testing evidence in unsolved murders runs as much as $5,000 for each cold case. In recent years, Othram Labs has been working with local Las Vegas philanthropist Justin Wu to raise funds to close more cold cases in Southern Nevada. And Wu has been working overtime to raise funds to find justice in the hundreds of cold cases pending with the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department. At this point, it's been over 40 years since Kim Bryant went missing. Homicide detectives in the Metro Cold Case Division occasionally dust off the files and take a look at the evidence in the Bryant murder in the hope that time will have revealed something missed by previous investigators. But no matter which way they look at the case file, detectives always end up at the same place. Stephen Peter Morin is the most likely suspect responsible for Kim's murder. After all, items that looked like they belonged to Kim were found in Morin's Las Vegas storage unit. And Morin almost certainly abducted and murdered Cheryl Daniel and Susan Balot. The Daniel and Balot murders occur only a year after Kim's slaying, and the MO appears strikingly similar. Young women abducted from public locations with their bodies then disposed of in the desert. But it's all still just circumstantial. And there are loose ends that still don't line up with the theory that Morin was the mastermind of Kim Bryant's murder. For one, the sketch of a suspect based on two eyewitnesses does not match the age or appearance of Stephen Peter Morin. And witness descriptions of the vehicle that approached Kim on the day of her abduction did not match Morin's trademark Ford Ranchero. For decades, there was nothing that could be done to reconcile these inconsistencies in the case. It seemed as though a definitive answer to the question of who killed Kim Bryant would forever be subject to speculation. But in the fall of 2021, the Las Vegas police call a press conference. The killer of Kim Bryant has been identified. Lieutenant Ray Spencer with the Metro Homicide Division takes the podium in a room filled with local and national press. Behind him on a screen is projected the image of Kim Bryant as she looked around the time of her disappearance. 
We investigated this case for years without being able to identify a suspect. 10 days ago, we were notified that the genealogical profile built by Othram Labs based on sperm recovered from the body of Kim Bryant at autopsy revealed that Johnny Blake Peterson was the person that kidnapped, sexually assaulted, and murdered Kim Bryant. A name. After all these years, there was now finally a name for the murderer of Kim Bryant. But who is Johnny Blake Peterson? Police show reporters a mugshot of Peterson from an unrelated arrest. The killer bears a striking resemblance to a scruffier version of Kurt Russell, with sandy blonde hair and a mustache. For those familiar with the background of the Kim Bryant investigation, Peterson's eyes are a close match to the eyewitness sketch of the grubby hippie type that was approaching female students around Western High School in the days leading up to Kim's abduction. And, as it turns out, Peterson was a student at Western High who graduated the year before Kim's murder. Lieutenant Spencer goes on to tell reporters that while Johnny Blake Peterson is the man responsible for Kim's death, he will not face any justice. Peterson died in 1993 at age 32, decades before DNA evidence would tie him to Kim's murder. A few weeks pass before more shocking news comes out about Peterson. It turns out that another young woman fell victim to this predator before his sudden death in 1993. The year is 1983. 22-year-old Diana Hansen graduated from Clark High School in 1979 and had since moved from her native Las Vegas to attend college in Texas. But just as she does every Christmas, she returns to her home in the desert to visit family for the holidays. Diana loves jogging and has a regular route she runs along heavily trafficked roads on the western part of Vegas. The young college student has run along these streets countless times without incident, and Diana expects nothing different when she ties her running shoes and leaves her parents' house at around 5.30 p.m. on December 30, 1983. She runs from West Desert Inn Road south along Torrey Pines Drive to either Twain Avenue or Spring Mountain Road. But somewhere along Diana Hansen's journey, she vanishes. Her nude body is discovered in the desert the following day, not far from where Kim Bryant's body was located almost five years earlier. Diana's cause of death is several stab wounds. And like Kim, she's been the victim of sexual assault. The clearest similarity to Kim Bryant's murder is the location where the bodies are left. Both Kim and Diana also appear to be targets of opportunity. Kim happened to be alone in front of the Dairy Queen in an area with which Peterson was familiar, and Hansen goes missing while alone on a jog. Neither crime bears the signs of being extensively premeditated. While the manner of death is different in the Kim Bryant and Diana Hansen cases, this fact supports the conclusion that there is an impulsive element to Johnny Blake Peterson's crimes. It seems that after abducting his victims, Peterson's MO is to take them to an area of the desert he's comfortable with to commit sexual assaults and then murder with whatever weapon is most convenient, be it a rock or a knife. Very little information is available about Johnny Blake Peterson. The murderer of Kim Bryant is as mysterious in death 
as he was in life. What we do know is that he was born and raised in Las Vegas, he was married with two children, and he earned his living as a plasterer and contractor. He even ran an ad for his contracting services in the classified section of the local newspaper in the early 1990s. Peterson faced arrest in his youth in relation to sexual assault charges, but the charges were eventually dismissed, and the future killer was set free. Peterson met his untimely end in January of 1993 at a Las Vegas hospital. A short obituary ran in the local newspaper, but it's silent on his cause of death. And what led to Peterson's end is just one of many unanswered questions. What drove Peterson to kill? Did his rage and propensity for extreme violence extend to his personal life? Or was he able to conceal his worst impulses from his family until they could be vented against an unsuspecting victim? We may never find out the answers to those questions. And currently, police are looking at Johnny Blake Peterson's possible links to as many as five additional unsolved homicides during the 1970s and 1980s. But what we do know is that after over 40 years of waiting and wondering, the family of Kim Bryant finally obtained closure. Sadly, Kim's mother Sherry passed away before Peterson was identified as the killer, but Kim's stepfather Edward was able to obtain a resolution to his beloved stepdaughter's murder. The missing and the taken are often forgotten, sometimes over months, sometimes years or decades, but their memories can be resurrected in unexpected ways. The intersection at Buffalo and Charleston is no longer vacant desert where kids wander, teenagers gather to share illicit booze, and young lovers find a place to meet. Three corners of the intersection are now populated by one-story homes, a gas station, and a repair shop. But the power substation where Kim Bryant's brutalized body was found still stands on the northwest corner, a marker for those looking with the right eyes for a decades-long mystery and the tragic taking of a charitable spirit from the local community. To learn more about this Las Vegas true crime story and many others, visit MayhemInTheDesert.com and get yourself acquainted with the darker side of Sin City's history. Sin City Stories, Vegas True Crime, is based on material researched and written by Megan and Anthony Smith and is adapted for podcast, edited, and narrated by Jeff Walker. Sin City Stories, Vegas True Crime, is a co-production of Mayhem in the Desert and Walker New Media. Copyright 2024.